It's a summer ritual for a lot of people. Head out into the woods, pitch a tent, and tell ghost stories around a campfire. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we're bringing you ghost stories. Okay, so we don't have a campfire, but it is still summer, and on the bright side, we don't need bug repellent. Although I do think I see a mosquito flying around the studio, but I digress. With a history as deep and rich as New York City's, perhaps it's no surprise that a countless number of people have reported ghostly encounters here. Some have even claimed they've seen the ghost of John Lennon at the Dakota, the site of his assassination in 1980. Another late notable who may or may not still be calling New York City home is Marcel Duchamp. The French painter, sculptor, and writer died in 1968 at the age of 81. But according to the woman currently living in the West 14th Street apartment where he kept a studio, Duchamp is still among us. My name is Kelly Kogan, and I live right on the border of the West Village in Chelsea. What can you tell us about this apartment? It was one of Marcel Duchamp's studios. So he lived here, I think it was for about 10 years, and it was where he created some of his last works. Had you known that Marcel Duchamp had a studio here before you moved in? I did, yeah. I moved in with a a good friend, or she became a good friend. It was a friend of a friend. And uh, she was she was an expert on Marcel Duchamp, so she knew all of the history and, and everything and um, showed me some books of some of his works that have pictures of the, uh, the ceiling in them, in some of his collages. So why do you think it is that perhaps Marcel Duchamp has never left the studio? I think maybe he uh, comes to enter and say hello once in a while, more so. We don't get a, or I don't get an overwhelming feeling that he's here all the time, but there are and have definitely been occasions when um, doors will close without reason and and my dog will bark at absolutely nothing and and he doesn't tend to bark unless there's, you know, a, a new person in the apartment and he's just saying hi and then he settles down. But maybe because it was, you know, one of his, his later studios and He wanted to, you know, just drop in and make sure everything is still going well. So what went through your mind the first time that you experienced something like a door closing on its own? It actually felt kind of natural. It didn't seem to, you know, scare anybody or it didn't feel strange by any means. I think my my roommates and I just kind of say, oh, Oh, Marcel, no no big deal, just saying hi, stopping by. What were your thoughts about ghosts about paranormal activity prior to moving into this apartment? The the town that I grew up in, in Connecticut, has more dead people than alive people. <laughs> so I definitely believe in it. But I personally have not had any strong encounters. I actually did just have a, a recent experience at a, one of my best friend's restaurants up in Vermont. She owns a restaurant and they live above it. And I was up there for uh, Wonderlust, the, the yoga retreat, and I was staying with her, and I stopped into the restaurant just to say I was, you know, heading out for a bit, and as I was leaving, the, the restaurant has one, you know, the main door, and then on both sides of the door are uh, small panes of windows, and I saw a reflection in the window as I was leaving. I, you know, I slowed down to let the, the person enter the restaurant, 
and the door opens and nobody was there. So <laughs> I look around, nobody's outside. I close the door and I go back to, to my friend and I said, you didn't tell me you had ghosts in your, in your restaurant. And she said, we don't, Kelly. Too much yoga, too much meditation. <laughs> Um, but so, yeah, I, I definitely am, am a believer. What do people say when you tell them Marcel Duchamp haunts my apartment? It's funny. Some people think it's very cool and some people, you know, don't want to come over. <laughs> as far as you know, he's never shown himself. No one's seen an apparition of Marcel in this apartment? No, not um, since I've been living here, which has been about nine or ten years. And then... The roommate that I moved in with, she had been living here for about 10 years as well. So I feel like she would have told me, but maybe she she knew that that might be a bit much. So maybe she's hiding it from me, but not that I'm aware of. There are paranormal investigators out here in New York City who sometimes get wind of cases like this and want to come investigate. Anyone ever come to you and say, you know what, we want to check things out in your apartment? No, but maybe now they will. <laughs> uh, no, that would be interesting to hear, you know, what somebody else has to say. Um, I don't feel a need to, to call anybody here, but it'd, it'd be interesting to you call anybody as in any, you know, spirits here, but it'd be interesting to hear what an investigator or somebody who knew more about it had to say about the apartment. Kelly, thanks so much for your time. Great. Thank you. Kelly Kogan lives in an apartment on West 14th Street in Manhattan that she believes is haunted by the ghost of artist Marcel Duchamp. When it comes to haunted houses in New York City, the Merchant's House in the East Village is considered the most haunted. It's the city's only family home preserved intact inside and out from the mid-19th century. The property, a museum for many years now, is reportedly haunted by a wide variety of spirits. I recently paid a visit to the museum to learn more about its inhabitants, past and, well, maybe still present. My name is Anthony Belov. I'm a board member at the museum, I guess for about the past six years. Been a volunteer here for 1982 and a lifetime New Yorker. What's the history of the Merchant's House? The Merchant's House is truly unique. Uh, it's the only family dwelling in New York City surviving intact from the 19th century. And the reason for that being that the family who lived here never left. The house was built in 1832. The Treadwell family moved in in 1835, so they were not the original occupants. And when the youngest and last surviving child of the family, Gertrude, passed away in 1933, the house was basically intact. All the family's possessions, their furnishings, their clothings, everything was still here. A distant cousin by the name of George Chapman realized that the house was about to meet the fate of all the other houses that once graced the streets in this neighborhood, and he thought something needed to be done about it. So he bought the house lock, stock, and barrel, uh, had the mortgages on the house forgiven. This was the Depression, after all. And three years later, in 1936, the house opened as the Old Merchant's House, a museum uh, reflecting the life of a prosperous 19th century New York merchant. Who were the Treadwells? Tell me more about them. The Treadwells are an interesting family simply because they're not interesting. They're very typical of the type of prosperous, upper-middle-class, affluent merchant family who made New York City the primary economic engine of the nation that it is today. Mr. Treadwell, Seabury Treadwell, came from Long Island, the area around Manhasset. His family traced their American presence back to the 17th century. He was a prosperous merchant who rented rooms down uh, near the Fulton Seaport. 
the house is probably still standing on Pearl Street where he lived. And he fell in love with the proprietor's daughter, Eliza. Uh, she was a Parker, and her family traced their roots back to the 17th century as well uh, in the area around Rumson, New Jersey. So apparently they married for love. He was significantly older than she by about uh, a decade and a half. And they had eight children, the last one being born right here in this house. All eight lived in this house? All eight lived in this house at one point with husbands and grandchildren and aunts. Uh, we have a census from 1855 which uh, lists 21 people, including four servants. Living. How many bedrooms are here? Well, there's 11 bedrooms, <laughs> so, but still 21 people in 11 bedrooms mean there was a certain amount of bunking up going on. What do we know about Seabury Treadwell in terms of what kind of man he was? Seabury Treadwell, there's a lot of urban myths around that talk about him as being very strict and somber and, and, and a disciplinarian, but the more we manage to uncover about the family, and I have to put in a note here, that when the house opened as a museum, the family papers were suppressed, I suppose, because they just didn't think people needed to delve into the private lives of the Treadwells. But the more we learn about Seabury, his wife Eliza, and their eight children, uh, and their in-laws and grandchildren, the more we realize that they were really just a very typical, warm, loving family, uh, the way most people are, the way most people aspire toward. Uh, there's not a whole lot of um, extraordinary behavior that would indicate otherwise. We're sitting in one of the home's bedrooms right now. Whose bedroom was this? Well, as far as we know, we are sitting in Eliza Treadwell's bedroom. Uh, there was a master suite comprising an entire floor in the building, very luxurious, uh, two equal-sized master bedrooms, a dressing room in between them, another dressing room or boxing room or spare room, whatever you want, off to the front, just over the front entrance of the house. And this is where the master and mistress of the house dwelt in all their glory. We say we assume this is Eliza Treadwell's bedroom simply because we don't have a sign over the door that says Mrs. Treadwell. So we've surmised certain things. How many of the Treadwells died in this house? How many of the Treadwells died in this house? We like to say there were eight funerals held in this house. Uh, most of the children returned uh, in their final days or their final years to live here. Mr. and Mrs. Treadwell certainly died in the house as well. And the room we're sitting in, Mrs. Treadwell's bedroom, is said to be the most active paranormal room in the house. Is Eliza keeping this room active? Well, I've never met Eliza, so I can't say who's here or what's here. But this would have been one of the nerve centers of the house. Uh, Mrs. Treadwell was responsible for the well-being of her children. Uh, hospitals were for poor people back then, and you only called the doctor if you really needed to. So one of the roles of the mother or primary caregiver of the house was nursing and, and medicinal care. And so the room reflects the fact that children and other family members would have spent time in this room if they were sick. We have a spare bed here in the room. When you say this room is active with paranormal activity, what does that mean exactly? What happens in this room? This room has a long history of occurrences going all the way back to the 1930s. Uh, I can speak best for an, uh, for an occurrence that happened to myself. Uh, one day, this was a long time ago, I was closing up the house. I was acting as site manager that day. And that was one of my first experiences in the house uh, by myself. I was... Uh, fresh out of college and working part-time for the museum. And I was closing up the rooms and saved this floor for last because I worked myself up from the ground floor. And then the offices are just above this, where I had my jacket. It was in October. Uh, 
sometime in the late 80s, I believe. I walked past this room. The door was wide open from the hallway, and everything looked normal. I walked to the front of the house where I closed up the spare room and Mr. Treadwell's bedroom, and I walked back through a connecting interior hallway that privately connects the two bedrooms, and it didn't occur to me as odd that the door to Mrs. Treadwell's bedroom was closed. shouldn't have been, but it just didn't strike me. I was getting ready to leave. I opened the door, glanced inside, and a room that had been wide open, windows open, sunlight streaming in, maybe 45 seconds prior, was now totally closed up. The windows were shut, the shutters were closed and bolted, the lights were turned off, and the doors to Mr. Treadwell's bedroom and the hallway were also both shut. Well, I stood there flabbergasted, and I managed to croak out, thanks, Gertrude, and I ran upstairs and was out of this house in Olympic, uh, Olympic record-setting time. So you thought it might have been Gertrude, the youngest child who died in this house? Well, the oral tradition at that time was that Gertrude was still here. Yeah. Has Gertrude ever appeared in apparition form in this house? Well, there is a tradition that Gertrude was a lady in white who used to float up and down the staircase, the, stair- on the hallway just outside the master bedroom uh, floors. This tradition goes back to the 40s and 50s, and there haven't been any reports of her being seen recently, but other people have been seen. Uh, there is a fantastic story of a woman who worked uh, up in Albany in the judicial system, so she's no slouch. She, she's somebody who we can take her word you know, at face value, and she had a long conversation with an elderly gentleman who began telling her stories about the house. And the odd thing was, uh, it was July, it was very hot, and he was wrapped in a wool overcoat which reeked of mothballs. And she said he looked as if he'd had uh, a really tough existence. And he had boils on his face, and he looked very careworn. A moment later, she turned for a minute. She was very uncomfortable because he was very close to her physically, and too close. And he began jabbering about the uh, builder of the house and how well he knew him. And this would have been 1832, so she's, you know, her exact quote was, this guy's a nut. And she turned to her companions for a little bit of assistance, and they just sort of looked at her, odd, and she turned back, and he was gone. And they searched the house, thinking that this man probably should not be in the house unattended. And they couldn't find him. And uh, they were down on the parlor floor, and suddenly she heard the front door open, and there he was standing there. And he told her, come back and visit us again, closed the door behind him, and stepped out onto the stoop. She ran after him, and he was nowhere to be seen. And that's when she put two and two together and realized it doesn't always add up to four. She uh, reported this to one of the docents uh, who offered to show her family photographs. And she recognized this elderly gentleman as an older version of the Treadwell's youngest son, Samuel. And she said it was absolutely he. So she had a conversation with Samuel. Uh, There have been several sightings of a male servant, probably somebody who would have come in just for the day, standing in the kitchen. The last time, just a few years ago, when we had a big uh, hoopla of a party downstairs, a private event, and uh, several people saw this somber man standing by the entrance to the period kitchen in period attire, and they thought it was interesting that somebody was dressed in period clothing at the event, and then, of course, a minute later, he was gone. So there have been sightings. Have you ever had any paranormal investigators come to the house? We actually have an ongoing paranormal investigation in progress. We've been investigating the house periodically for the last seven years using Dan Sturgis and his team from Sturgis Paranormal, Inc. 
They're a New York-based branch, and we, as you can imagine, have been approached countless times by people who've wanted to come in and investigate the house, both quote-unquote professionals, meaning people who do this seriously, and people who just think it would be a lark. So we have to be very protective of the house and the collections, and up until Dan Sturgis approached us, we basically just said no to everyone. But um, if you'll forgive the, the uh, metaphor, Dan's email seemed sincere. And so we thought, hmm, this is somebody to pursue. So in truth, we put him through an extreme vetting process, and he was very, very patient and very understanding of our concern for the house. And ultimately, we began working with him uh, seven years ago, which would have been in 2007. And in that time, most times we've uh, gotten together, nothing's happened. I'd say probably 90% of the time. But every so often, something really odd happens. And we have uh, audio recordings of voices in rooms that were empty and footsteps. And there was one really chilling occurrence that I was present for where a door slammed quite, I'm going to say violently, simply because it was so loud uh, in Mr. Treadwell's bedroom. And the odd thing was the door was already closed. So how does a closed door slam, and all by itself for that matter? Um, and these are actually recordings you can hear that we um, play for visitors on our famous ghost tours. Any photographic evidence? We have some photographic evidence. There is an image of swirling lights here in Mrs. Treadwell's bedroom. Uh, that no one can explain. Uh, the cameras were set so that any natural light would have a reddish uh, hue to it. And these little pinpoints of light are blue and white. And the photograph, it, it's a digital photograph naturally, uh, was on a timed exposure so you can see that they were moving. And we were able to reconstruct exactly where the lights occur and they occur um, right over Eliza's bed in a spot which is famous for forming a dent in it. And I'm looking at her bed right now, and there is the dent. There is a dent in the bed right now, I will admit that. And it's certainly not something that we do. I know the curator here at the museum and all the past curators have been frustrated about three or four times a year they have to remake the bed because suddenly a dent appears in it. Well, now, if that dent suddenly lifted up, I think I would <laughs> leave this room very quickly. Well, you know, I used to feel that way at one time, but... Uh, having been uh, a volunteer and a board member here for so many years and participating actively in the paranormal investigations, I've kind of gotten over that. Things happen that cause your heart to skip a beat, yes, but um, I don't panic the way I once did. And I'll cite an example if you want it, because in all these years of being active with the museum, I became a volunteer here in 1982 when I was very young. Um, I've never seen anything. I've smelled things. I've heard things. I've been poked quite sharply. I've had things moved on me, sometimes to other rooms, but I've never seen anything until just this past October, which would have been October of 2013. Uh, I was working with a psychic uh, medium on a special presentation at the museum uh, where we read the rooms to a special group of people who came around and wanted to tour the house and know what the psychic was picking up in each room. And just before, we were sitting on the uh, main staircase downstairs on the parlor floor, just sort of plotting, you know, our progression, and you'll say this, and I'll say that, and we'll go here, we'll do that. I was seated on the lowest step, so my body was facing the front door. She was behind me a few steps up, so I had to twist and sort of arc around in order to make visual contact with her. And up at the turn of the staircase leading up to the 
uh, bedroom floors, which were all dark, by the way, um, I saw a woman standing there right at the turn of the staircase. And uh, a, a rustle and a movement caught my eye, and there was a woman standing there. Uh, and I made a quick inventory of everyone who was in the house. The house wasn't open yet. Uh, and I knew where everyone, all the volunteers, all the people you know, managing the house, they were all downstairs. There was no one on that floor. Uh, while having this conversation, trying not to be rude, I'm glancing over her shoulder at this figure, trying to make it out more clearly. And I saw a woman with very pale skin and huge, luminous blue eyes. She was really quite beautiful. Very, very clear. And I'm thinking, wow, i finally seen someone, and I can't even deal with it right now because we're about to open the house. So I just put it in the back of my mind. I didn't react at all. And went on with my business, and by the end of the night, I'd forgotten about it. Two days later, I mentioned it in passing to Pi Gardner, the executive director of the museum. I said, oh, uh, this was the first night of the ghost tours for 2013. I said, oh, I saw someone. And she looked at me, what? Because we've known each other forever. And she said, you finally seen somebody? Who was it? I said, I don't know. And she said, didn't you look at the photographs of the family? And I went, yeah, that would have been a good idea, wouldn't it have? So I walked over to the display case where the family photos are on display for everyone to see. And no, 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 no. Yes. And there was she, the, the woman I saw to a T. It was Eliza, Sieber, Eliza Seabury Treadwell Nichols. She married a Nichols, and she was one of the two daughters who married, and ultimately she had children and moved out of the house. I saw her as clear as I'm looking at you now. Anthony, thanks so much for your time. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Anthony Belov is a board member of the Merchant's House Museum. If you want to get in on a raffle to take part in a paranormal investigation at the museum or find out more about their ghost tours, check out their website, merchantshouse.org. You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Borarki. Joining me now on the phone is the paranormal researcher Anthony mentioned has been investigating ghostly activity at the Merchant's House Museum. His name is Dan Sturgis. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, it's my pleasure, George. Thanks for having me on. So how did you get involved in the field of paranormal research? Well, it's uh, it's something I'd always been interested in ever since I was a young boy. And and uh, in my teen years, I sort of got out of it and, and was more into sports and girls. And uh, and then in my uh, in my late twenties, I, I sort of rediscovered it. And I was a uh, still am a Civil War buff, and and was lucky enough to be able to uh, go up and down the East Coast on some off time I would have from work, and and uh, and visit all the battlefields. And and uh, and every Civil War battlefield has a haunted bed and breakfast. So I would make arrangements to stay in one of those. And and in Gettysburg. I was staying at a bed and breakfast called the Farnsworth House. And uh, while I was staying there, there was a paranormal investigation team, and they were doing an investigation at the house, and, and I got a chance to meet with them and speak with them, and they wanted to investigate the room that I was staying in. And, and, uh, and they were a really cool group of people, and and uh, I started reading up more on the investigation side of this kind of stuff and realized that there are a lot of people out there doing this kind of research, and, and, and here I am today. Did they find anything in that room you were staying no. in? No, 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 but it's notoriously, uh, supposedly one of the most haunted uh, bed and breakfasts in, in Gettysburg. What's involved in investigating a haunting? Uh, a lot of patience and, and a lot of time and, uh, and a lot of talking to people that have had these experiences. 
as far as equipment, I think, which is what you're you're kind of getting at, uh, we we do use a. I try and use a minimal amount of equipment. Um, as far as electromagnetic field detectors and stuff like that, you see the, the kind of equipment on the TV shows and in the movies, but they're really not practical. There hasn't been a piece of equipment, a scientific piece of equipment that's been developed for ghost hunting. We modify uh, existing equipment to suit our needs. But what we will do on an investigation is is there's a lot of background interviews that we'll do just to speak with the people just find out whether or not it warrants an investigation uh, a lot of times you can figure out what's going on or you get a good feel for what might be going on in somebody's dwelling just by speaking to them over the phone and uh, you might not have to make that trip and spend endless hours in the middle of the night at somebody's uh, somebody's place what are among the more prominent locations you've investigated here in new york city the Belasco theater i investigated over here on 44th street and 6th avenue uh, I've investigated the Morris Jumel Mansion, which is a beautiful, beautiful mansion in the uh, up in Washington Heights, and also the Bartow Pell Mansion, which is in the Bronx, and it's another stunning, stunning location. But I'd probably say the uh, my favorite place and the most active place I've been to would be the Merchant's House Museum, which is on uh, 29 East 4th Street. It's unusual that a place like like the Merchant's House would let me in there, but they, they have a diary, of, and they've kept track of all the phenomena that's been happening in the house from the 30s. So it's unique in that uh, I can go back and cross-reference an experience somebody had, say, this year, and, and find a match to an experience somebody had in the 40s. What are some of the more common experiences that people have when they encounter apparitions or just some level of paranormal activity in a home? Probably the most common thing I hear is that uneasy feeling of being watched. Some of the more common things are, are the footsteps and hearing voices, uh, seeing things out of the corner of their eye, which all can be explained rationally and, and normally, not necessarily paranormally. But, uh, but those are the most common things that I hear. You do use voice recorders, right, to yes, capture the voices of a spirit? Yes, we do, and uh, that's called uh, EVP or electronic voice phenomena. And uh, yeah, they're just ordinary digital recorders that uh, that we use on investigations, and we'll ask questions and give a pause for about seven or eight seconds. Hopefully, there'll be an answer in that pause when we go back and review the recordings at a later date. Have you captured anything on a recorder? Uh, yes, I've gone years without, but at the Merchant's House, I, I have, uh, I've been very lucky at the Merchant's House where we've gotten answers to questions. Uh, we have gotten responses to comments that we've made, not necessarily asking questions to somebody that uh, a discarnate in their room, just conversations between the two of us and, or three of us between the people on the investigation, and, uh, and we'll hear in the background there'll be a comment. Uh, from somebody that's not in the room. Now, what we'll do with something like that is I will send off my audio, my digital file of that recording to a, a forensic analyst, and he can use uh, his software so that he can use the voices almost like a fingerprint, and he can confirm that there is an anomalous voice that wasn't uh, part of the conversation. Give me an example of something that a spirit said to you. Uh, we uh, at the Merchant's House uh, did an investigation one uh, one month, and, and I brought in a, a psychic medium with me, and uh, and he thought he was picking up the impression of a young girl. 
Um, nothing happened that night. It was just his impression. And uh, cut to about two months later, we were doing an investigation, and we had our recorders going. And one of the investigators I was with was, was addressing who might be in the room and said, there's no reason for anybody to be scared. We're not trying to kick you out of this location. We just want to know that you're here. Um, there's a slight pause, and, and I respond to a, to a girl that was on her first investigation. I wanted to ask, uh, ask her to ask a question. And, uh, and underneath our voices, you hear what sounds like a young girl say, I am not afraid. Hmm. Have you ever seen a ghost with your own naked eyes? No, I have not. Why is it important, Dan, to investigate paranormal activity? For me, uh, I love the research, and I think it's important because it is the ultimate question, what happens after we die? What happens after our physical body ceases? And uh, does our consciousness or our spirit or our soul or whatever you might want to call it, uh, does that go somewhere else? The uh, you know physics or thermodynamics tells us that energy uh, can't be created or destroyed. It just transfers. Now, if our energy transfers, is that energy self-aware? Is it aware of its surroundings? And can it communicate back and forth? I would imagine, though, that you encounter your fair share of critics, people who simply don't believe. If I can't see it, it doesn't exist. How do you oh, answer sure. those critics? Most of my friends, a lot of the guys at the gym, <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll, they'll see a picture of me in the paper and they'll just go, Dan, really, come on, are you really doing this? And I'll bring them to the merchant's house and say, you know, five or six times out of, out of ten, you'll, uh, they'll have an experience that'll change their mind. Dan Sturgis, thank you so much for your time. Uh, my pleasure, George. Thank you. Dan Sturgis is a paranormal researcher. You'll find him online at SturgisParanormal.com. That's Sturgis, spelled S-T-U-R-G-E-S. And now we have to make like a ghost and disappear. That's all the time we have for this edition of Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. My thanks to producer Taylor Nolk. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.